The following episode features Mike Corey. He has a YouTube channel called Fearless and Far with over 600,000 subscribers. He has traveled the world over in search of adventures all the way from hunting baboons in Africa to eating spider cheese in Europe and getting magic tattoos in Asia. Some of his stories are way too incredible to just listen to. So do check out Fearless and Far on YouTube and fearlessandfar.com. Marine biologist, filmmaker, YouTuber, travel influencer, break dancer, beatboxer, podcaster. Forgive me if I missed anything. And is there anything you can't do, Mike? <laughs> well, I, I really do try to, to try everything once. That is literally my motto. And I know it sounds cliche, but I don't think there's very many other people on this planet who, is, who have tried as many things that I have. And some of them, I'm okay at. A lot of them, not so much. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I do believe uh, that you can learn as much as you can, but you can't learn everything, but you can learn as much as you can. And I'm with you when you said like, yeah, I, I do try to try as many things as possible as well, you know, and, uh, and see what fits. And obviously for your life so far, a lot of things have fit very, very well. So on the, on the other side of the line, everybody is Mike Corey. So you can find his work on YouTube and he's also on different platforms. We're going to give, give him a lot of time to talk about his work. So again, thank you for coming on the show, Mike. Um, thank you for being so patient with the timeline as well. Oh, my pleasure, Josh. All right. So from those things that I mentioned above, which one of those do you wish people asked you more about? Good question. Well, <laughs> I did do a biology degree in university back in Canada, and I guess I don't no one really talks about that. I don't even I myself, I don't talk about that. But it, it, it was a foundational part of me becoming who I am today. Because while I don't really do that much work with animals, if, if you watch the videos, you'll see in between that I really do enjoy talking about them showing off cool bugs and insects and frogs and things. And that's because where this all started this this thirst to see the entire world was this curiosity that was instilled in me by my parents. They were always, I've got three siblings and they were always pushing us outside to explore, get dirty in the woods. And we'd make these little terrariums and aquariums with different critters we found at the beach or um, in the backyard. And we were obsessed with that kind of stuff. And so from a young age, I was very, I was, I was very curious. And especially with, with the creatures and, and animals and things in the forest and in the ocean that people didn't understand. So snakes and spiders and, you know, gooey balls of jelly that people don't really know what they are i would always be like oh no it's actually it's a cnidarian and oh no it's actually a garter snake whatever it is and so the things that were misunderstood i really enjoyed explaining because i i knew they were really cool it was a matter of explaining to everybody else why and that went forward so for me now i do a lot of people call it crazy things but in my eyes they're not crazy they're, they're just misunderstood whether it be you know, e eating um, spider cheese in, in Germany, or whether it be, you know, hanging by hooks or all this stuff, this body suspension. Uh, I, I, I generally don't try to risk my life to make these videos. I research, I, I understand. And then when I find something that's really interesting and misunderstood, I try to make a video about it. And sometimes people see how cool it is. Sometimes people still think it's crazy. But at the end of the day, I just really enjoy learning things and really enjoy disproving myths of things that are dangerous, scary, or people say they don't like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's, uh, that's basically where your foundation of where you are now came from. Now, why marine biology? Why just not of, any, of all the branches of sciences that could get you to, to, you know, that could get you interested in all these things? Well, why did you choose marine biology of all things? Because I grew up next to the ocean. So oh. I grew up in New Brunswick, Canada, which is right above Maine in uh, North America. And there, it's not the, I mean, people think of the ocean, they think of maybe, I don't know, beautiful Caribbean beaches, but there <laughs> it's, it's cold. I was about it's to so, ask that, yeah. Oh man, it's so cold. Even in the middle of summer, the water, I don't think it's any warmer than 15 degrees Celsius or something. So That's even, cold. yeah, it's really cold. In the winter, we we would go swimming as well. Uh, we don't even go scuba diving in the winter and it's mm. it's 
maybe five degrees Celsius or something then. Mm. But for me, because I grew up with this, this rough, cold ocean, the Bay of Funday, uh, the, the bay that's there, has the highest tides in the entire world. It's, mm -hmm. it's 45 feet. It's uh, like 15 vertical meters of water. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. Yeah. Twice, twice a day. Lifts all the boats. The beaches appear and disappear. The boats, boats lay on the rocks after. And, and with that, it's like a giant lung. It, it sucks in all this nutrient-rich water from the depths of the ocean, feeds all these animals in the bay, and then sucks it all back out again. So it's always like moving and it's filled with life. And so you go and you flip over some rocks or you do a little snorkel. And while, yeah, it's freezing, it's filled with life. It's so, so much life down there. There's a blanket on the bottom of the ocean of starfish and sea anemones and all kinds of interesting things. Mm. And that's where the love for marine biology came from. And one thing I don't talk about a lot is my, my family does have a business. And originally it was making fish food for salmon aquaculture. So they would produce, they have a big... Uh, plant like a factory and they'd make uh, fish food and then eventually that turned into pet food so now they don't make as much fish food salmon food they make dog food and cat food and so we've always been a big animal family in the beginning mm. it was a lot of marine animals with like the salmon industry and now it's more cats and dogs but for me i love legitimately every animal on the planet and again, people get a bit weird with me sometimes. How can you be a biologist? How can you love animals when you eat them or you make the videos that you do? Because I've, I've made a lot of videos about hunting specifically because hunting, again, going to with this, with, with this theme that's misunderstood, people don't, uh, people don't understand how the world mm. works when it comes to meat. Mm. You know, they'll, they'll crucify someone who goes and hunts for something, but then they'll go buy a, a six pack of hot dogs at the grocery store, not realizing that like, every dollar you spend in this life is like a ticket on how, how you want the world to be. And buying hot dogs is saying, I support basically animal cruelty and, and slaughter in, in terrible conditions. Whereas hunting is, is much more sustainable and, and practical and also kind to this planet. So for me, this, this idea that, um, that hunting is bad and that you can't be an animal lover and like hunting, like, I'm not a hunter. I just find the topic fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've covered it a few times in my videos. Mm. Well, you know, even way before human beings were here, that's how the world really worked. You know, I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. true. It's it's a it's it's the it's the nature of the world where people just used to hunt, and you know, you don't really. I mean, you do it every day, but the amount of hunting that a person or a tribe can do on a daily basis, um, it's very sustainable. Like you, there's no humane way that you will hunt down an entire species in a in a short amount of time so there's always that time in between for these the 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 animals to replenish their their stock so yeah it's very um it's very sustainable but yeah we moved on obviously from from that to having agriculture and you know and from just having uh, animal farms left and right i mm. found your work originally from a video that you made and this was when you went out hunting with the Hadza in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the Babu raiding video. It's on YouTube for anyone who's listening. Uh, Mike Corey, uh, how long did you stay with the Hadza people during that shoot? Yeah, so I went, I went twice. I'm not sure which one you saw. The first one where we caught a lot of things, but not baboons. And then I, I returned I saw both. back. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, saw both. a month later that uh, oh. where we got baboons. Oh, okay. You, so that was a month yeah. in between. Yeah, about a month and a half. Okay. Um, and YouTube just, oh, YouTube and I are like quarreling lovers. <laughs> <laughs> because I want to show people the real world, mm. right? I'm not trying to shock and awe and i i already heavily cut my footage but when you go out hunting with some of the last hunter gatherers in the world and mm -hmm. they're you know catching baboons i want to show that but i don't i, I know i can't show the, the gory bit so i'll i'll tastefully cut it but then lo and behold this morning i wake up in my new hadzabe video which almost has a million views the other one mm -hmm. almost has six mm -hmm. million uh, yes. has been age restricted and age restricted means it's like demonetization where they don't put advertisers advertisers on it and then mm. age restriction is when there's no advertisers and they don't show anybody who isn't signed in or is under 18 and it's basically like a video death sentence like no one no one watched the video anymore no so see. Yeah, okay. and it's hard it's hard being a creator i'll get to your question in a second but it's hard right. being a creator sometimes in my shoes when there's not really a defined line 
like for example, I, I made another video about the Himba tribe, which got uh, age restricted a, a little while ago, like two months ago, going and spending a time with uh, 48 hours with this tribe and the women don't wear shirts because they think ankles are sexy, not breasts. And we're there and we're sleeping in, in, in the, the village with them. And um, they're like asking to marry me. And it's kind of a funny thing, but it's entirely censored. <laughs> I saw so, that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that got age restricted because I was sexualizing children is what it said, even though there were some naked kids, but they were all completely censored. Wow. And then I appealed it. I'm like, I'm not sexualizing children. I'm living, I'm showing like an educational video. I really try to, in, to, to instruct and depict it accurately and, and like scientifically and, 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 and give information. And, and then they said, okay, no, actually it's, it's sensual dancing is what they called it <laughs> because there's a scene where the, where the girls do like a, um, uh, a dance what and it's all fuck? censored and they called it sensual dancing and it was age restricted. Meanwhile, you look at like WAP by Nicki Minaj Jesus. and it's kind of like, it's, like, insane. it's insane. And who are these, <laughs> and who are these like, people? Who are these people? On, on on the platform and who are they to judge that it's sensual dancing these people have been dancing that way for god knows how long exactly dude and i don't know um it's just but there's no one to talk to like so you get a flag you can appeal it uh -huh. and then then they they give you like some stock reason and you don't actually have a conversation with anybody like i've got six hundred thousand right. subscribers i don't have a I don't have a person to speak to at YouTube. At, at some point in the past, if you had over, I think a hundred thousand, you'd have like a rep you could speak uh -huh. to about these things, but okay. I have no rep. So basically it's not even a discussion. They say, they say, this is what the video is, exploitation of children or something. And I say, are you serious? And they say, <laughs> oh, whoops, actually it's, it's sensual dancing. And I'm like, are you serious? But I only have one appeal. And so anyway, uh, going back to Hedzabe, that's mm. more, I just recently got um, aid restricted as well. Um, but that experience was incredible, man. And again, I, I'm not trying to, I just want to show these cultures, again, these things that are that are misunderstood, like, first of all, hunting, like I said, it's an interesting thing to talk about, because these guys go out every single day, they, they pull honey out of killer beehives with their bare hands and get stung, and they don't care. They catch mongoose and bats and baboons and whatever else they can find there. And that's how they live. And it's so fascinating and enlightening to spend time with with people like that and it's uh it's not easy because they're sprinting through bushes that are covered in fish hooks like some of those african thorn bushes are rough man and like mm. i had chunks taken out of my skin I, my shirts were destroyed but it was really you know what you know what i like about it is it's not it's not like oh my god look how crazy this is it's like i'm there i'm a white dude from middle of nowhere canada these guys grew up, uh, grew up, were about the same age or so, on the banks of Lake Assi in Tanzania. They're wearing baboon skins. And yet we can communicate. And yet we can understand each other. And yet we, we appreciate each other. And in this world today where there's like more segregation and xenophobia than ever, I just love going to a place and sh seeing, again, reaffirming that we're all just the freaking same, man. Like, mm. we could not be from be from two different worlds, me and Sokolo from the tribe over there. But yet we we get each other, right? And yeah, I don't speak Hadzane, the click language they do. And they they don't speak English. But we get each other. And I, I love that. And that makes me feel, it makes me feel alive. And it makes me feel like I understand the world as much as I can. I'll never fully understand the world, but just the feeling of everything is connected. We think we're all different with languages and religions and skin color, but dude, it's not like that. We all came from the same, same patchwork quilt and we're all pink on the inside. <laughs> dude, exactly. And so that's what I love. And that's part of making these videos with some of these remote tribes. It's not like, Oh, look at how crazy it is over here. It's like, look at how the same it is. Mm. Like, look how the same we are. Right. And yeah, of course, it's not exactly the same It's very, <laughs> but the, the idea there that people are people, no matter where they are, is really something that I, I adore com completely. And so these tribe videos, that's, that's the subtext for them for the most part. Awesome, dude. You, your work is just like, um, for this podcast, I do, I'm still trying to find my niche, but for now, I think I really want to go the direction of like finding these channels like yours, uh, and you know, these chat, your channel and a few more channels out there 
or there's a lot out there who deserve 10 times the attention as compared to whatever fucking noise, sorry, is, is out there at the moment. And I mean, you have to see it to, to actually me and Mike are trying our best to give you context on what his work is all about, but go on YouTube and really just type in far and fearless and you'll find his work. It's insane. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, those Hadza people, I, I saw the, the little bit that David Cho was, uh, did with, uh, with Joe Rogan. And he was, I think he, he embedded with the Hadza as well for a, for a time. Right. And uh, he went on with this, he, he had a bit where he was trying to explain how a supermarket worked to them. Mm. To them, it was just like mind blowing. Like, huh? You, you <laughs> yeah, <had> I imagine. <laughs> other people hunt your food for you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, well, it, they wake up every morning at 5 a.m., go out with like 15 hunting dogs and just uh -huh. see what they can find. I mean, it's kind of like the same idea, except for it's like <laughs> if you're in a grocery store uh -huh. and somewhere deep in there, there's a, a bagel that can actually physically hurt you and you've got to <laughs> root through boxes and thorn bushes and potential black mambas to be able to mm. find it, right? <laughs> Let, let's talk about those dogs real quick. Those dogs are tough, man. Do they belong to a breed of dog? Do they have a breed at all? They all look the same, but they're, they're obviously probably relatives. But is there a breed of those dogs you can call them? I have no idea. Actually, they're probably some mutt. But um, the thing tough, about man. dogs, yeah, totally. The thing that dogs people don't really understand is like, there's like iconic dogs, like you picture like the Yukon Quest or the Iditarod, right? These big husky-like dogs pulling the, the man in the sled through insane conditions in the north. That's actually not the best kind of dog for that stuff. There's this weird kind of, I think it's some kind of pointer mix. Someone might be able to correct me, but it's not the huskies. They're too big and they take up too much energy and they hurt themselves because again, the, the, their paws aren't really um, used to that mm. distance. And so the, these dogs that are smaller are much more efficient and actually better for these uses. And so you think like they get these big like Rottweilers or something for, for hunting baboons. I mean, I'm sure that could potentially work, but the problem is they've got to be very nimble. They've, they have to be able to survive on very little food because again, the dogs don't eat. If the people don't eat, the dogs definitely aren't eating. Mm. And so what, what's happened, I guess, is they've got this breed over who knows how many thousands uh, of years that, yeah, that, yeah. that works. And it's a small little brown dog. Maybe they're knee high at, at, at the biggest, very skinny. Um, and they can weave through the bushes, jump up the rocks, chase a baboon up a tree and still fight. Like, um, I, I think as, a, as somebody growing up in, in, in the developed world, you have this idea that monkeys are these fun little animals that, you know, ride a bicycle and eat a banana. But you they're see like a monkey. They're voracious, yeah. Dude, oh, if you see a macaque or like uh, a baboon, or the, they are nasty, man. I remember the first time me seeing a monkey, I was in, I think it was in Cambodia, and I was at Angkor Wat, and there's, I believe, the macaques that are outside of the, of the temple there. And I brought my camera up. Oh, my God, a monkey. And I take my camera up to like get a shot. And I think the lens looks like an eyeball. And the thing attacked me, man. It jumped mm -hmm. at me and tried to bite my camera and then sprinted away. And I was like, holy cow. You're like, not supposed not to. The, the, um, in Thailand, too, there's one province here. It's called Lopuri. And there's mm. a ton. And there was an outbreak of them after this virus hit because, you know, um, I, I think they were, they were searching for food because nobody was in the streets feeding them. So they went mm. out in this huge drove just like marauding through the town. And one thing that I remember the locals uh, tell me was like, just don't look at a monkey through the, in, the, in the eye. Just don't make yeah. eye contact like a human being. Like if you do want make eye contact in a different way, they'll misconstrue that as you being aggressive and they will therefore uh -huh. take that as an aggressive stance and they will attack. Yeah. yeah, and in Uluwatu okay. Temple in the south part of Thailand, they uh -huh. they steal your they steal your stuff. So you're oh, there. Yeah. It's this beautiful temple on oh, the yeah. south coast of Bali. No, that's Bali. Sorry, not not Thailand. Mm. And uh, Uluwatu Temple, and and there's actually what I had heard is that there there's people, um, Indonesians that had trained the monkeys that they'll get a banana if they bring a phone or sunglasses or jewelry. So <laughs> tourists would go there, they'd, they'd snap a photo or something, and the monkey would grab their phone and run over the bushes. And then they'd trade it for a banana on the other side. And then it's like, I think the question becomes, is that who's stealing the phone exactly in that? You know, yeah, you can't arrest exactly. a monkey. Do you arrest the guy? I guess you kind of arrest the guy. But it, anyway, I, I heard that story and it's funny. Who's, and they do steal your stuff Who's the accomplice? Like, who's the accomplice exactly. in, the, in the crime? Is it the human <laughs> or the monkey? Monkey jail.
in a, um, in a baboon. Yeah, I can imagine what a baboon must look like. How close were you? What was the closest you've been, you know, in, in that hunt that you did in the night? Dude, that was hairy, man. Like, I really yeah. thought you were going to get hit by an arrow. How scared were you to get hit by yeah. an arrow in the dark? Um, I didn't know that there was the risk of getting hit by an arrow until right before he, when in the video, there's my buddy, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, Yusuf, yeah. who's like, he's like, and I we couldn't hear what he was yeah, saying. They wouldn't know like, where, they, where we are. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you turn on your flashlight as soon as we start throwing rocks because they might shoot you with an arrow by accident. I know it should have been in the, the, the pre-hunt briefing when we were back uh, at the camp. Yeah. Um, but so the thing like, so I've seen baboons up close many times just in controlled environments, uh, like a national park or something. Mm. But in that case, the baboons wanted nothing to do with us. They knew like these are wild baboons and I'm with the Hadzabe tribe. Hadzabe tribe love to eat baboons. So the second the reason why we didn't get any the first time is the baboons heard the Hadzabe coming or saw them from a rock and they took off because they know like these dudes mean business mm. and if they meet it will be war mm. and that's part of the, the deal with these dogs too is they need to go to war with these baboons it's not just oh you know like being like a deer in the woods baboons will attack like they they're not going to do that first but if you trap a baboon tribe on a rock like they try to do the dogs get lacerated mm. and people will too if you're too close yeah. and um that's part of, of how these the, this encounter works and so you have to be very careful and um, so the second time we went, we we were there in the middle of the night, right? So we're, we tried to get them the day. It didn't happen. They're like, we're going to try again at night. So we sneak up and he, he said, you have to take your shoes off. You have to go with no flashlight. We're going to go up to this cliff with no dogs. And we're going to, one group's going to throw rocks at the cliff with the baboons. The other group's going to circle behind and shoot poison arrows at them. And hopefully they'll, we'll get some. And so we're there. I'm in the rock throwing group. I barely know what I'm doing. And so they make the signal. There's a guy who whistles in the bushes. We jump up, turn on our flashlights, start whipping rocks at this cliff. The baboons scream like demons in the night. And mm. then all of a sudden the other group rushes in. You see some arrows fly and then quiet. And I was like, all right. And I walk over and look around and there's no baboons. No, nobody. Everyone's looking around puzzled. And I was like, shit. You know, we came back again. We're like three days deep in the bush at this point. It's, uh, you know, we came all this way and we didn't get baboons. And then I see Sokoro, the, the, the tribe leader, go down and he's like poking at something. And they had got one. They shot one and it fell mm. off the cliff and it died on an impact on the bottom. And so they bring it up and I got to like see the very first baboon. Right. Yeah. And it he was wore it, it like was, a bag or something. I remember like yeah. he, was, he slung it over like a bag over his shoulder. I had to cut out a lot of the footage. He's there. So that baboon was shot with a poison arrow. It jumped over the cliff and then splattered and so he put it on his shoulders and like all the guts were like bleeding down his back and he but he was super excited and he's speaking in his like click language talking about how he shot it and and um but i had to cut most of that footage because again i was afraid it was going to get age restricted and hey mm. did in the end anyway but mm. a lot of that stuff is just real life um you know that's for them that they were so excited to be able to catch that. that'll feed them and it'll feed the 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 dogs for a day or so i mean there was 15 hunters so it's not that much food but for yeah. them they were very excited so we went back and the next morning we went and shot another one. But uh, it's such a crazy experience to be there. I, I don't even, if I could keep up with them, I would, I would, have, I would have loved to, but I can't. Mm. I'm running around. Even I, I consider myself very fit. I, I train often to make sure I'm safe and I can mm. keep other people safe too, but I can't move myself along those rocks and bushes as fast as they can. And so they'll see something, they'll sprint as fast as they can towards it even with like GoPros and stuff on the dogs and on the hunters, usually not all of them get there. Usually they have to do some kind of pincer movement. And so mm. I, I haven't been able to catch up. And mm. uh, the, the GoPros I had put on, the people and the dogs weren't on the right combination of people and dogs to be able to get like the up close shot of the, the encounter. But I always see the aftermath. And I mean, that's gruesome enough. Right. You, you plan all these things on your own as best as you can. Or do you work with somebody? I, I, I do want to get into your filmmaking, you know, uh, you know, as much as you want to share, obviously, strategies and, and techniques, because it really does look like there's how many people made this production happen. Like when you watch one of your videos, like, Jesus, like how, how many people made this thing happen? Yeah, it's usually just me. I mean, it's, it's incredible, man. 
Yeah. That's well, incredible. of course, I always find out someone local to help. For example, so for the Hezabe tribe, I had come across them a while ago. And then I was in Tanzania doing a project uh, climbing Kilimanjaro. Mm. And also I do some work, some television work as well. So I was on a BBC travel show shoot. And on that travel show shoot, there was a local Tanzanian guy named Gumbo. And he was helping um, do logistics and direct and everything in Tanzania. And so we had a week together filming in Zanzibar and a few other places. And I said, hey, Gumbo, man, what's up after this? I'm thinking about Hazabi tribe, you know, Maasai tribe, all these different things. And so we, I found the, the right connections through him. So I don't find, I, don't, I didn't find the Hazabi by myself, but I usually on location or before I go find the right um, trail of breadcrumbs to be able to make something happen. But Gumbo's was fantastic because often like with the Maasai, this is a, this is a, 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 a bigger problem is there's tribes who are on the roadside next to tourist towns that are, it's much less authentic and others who are deep, deep, deep that are living real life, the traditional lifestyle. And I'd rather go, go to the deeper ones who don't get very many tourist dollars who I can support a little bit who I, I can make a more authentic movie about and show the, the real culture, not something that's been a bit more modernized, let's Repackaged, say. So, yeah. yeah. And finding the right kind of person who understands that, because mm -hmm. for the most part, if you find an average tour guide, they don't understand what you're trying to do. They, they're going to take you to whatever, whatever's easiest, right? But Gumbo, since he had a TV background, understood that I needed something more authentic. And so mm -hmm. he found a, a fantastic tribe, uh, which was the Sokoro and, and the guys. For Hizabe, so but as far as the editing and the shooting, that's all me, man. And uh, that video took me like forty hours to edit, a long time. Um, but crazy. it turned out nice. Yeah, it turned out nicely. But I, I don't have, I can't do that every week. How many? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How many GoPros have you lost so far? <laughs> Just trapping them on wild uh, hunter gatherers and the, dogs. I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm the GoPro killer. I'm the camera killer. People, I got made fun of by one of my peers because I shoot on like not the latest gear. And it's because I you can't take like, for example, if I want I shoot on Sony, and I've got an a seven three. And for the longest time, I was waiting for the a seven s three, which is this beautiful low light, good travel camera. And there's there's better lenses, I shoot on a 16 to 35 millimeter f4 and a 90 millimeter macro 2.8. Mm -hmm. And those might go to lenses. I don't I could buy better lenses that have better apertures. But the thing is, like, my cameras get put through hell. They get dirty. They get muddy. They get smashed. I've I've broken three or four 90 millimeter macros and two or three 16 to 35 millimeter wide angle zooms. They've been clogged with mud. The screen, the glass has been cracked. They get filled with iron ore dust from riding the back of coal trains or whatever. So I can't have the best gear. And I the gear that I've settled on is the best for what I do. So mm. that that Sony the A7 III is such a good camera and it's not that expensive compared to some of the other ones mm -hmm. it's got slow motion it's got 4k dual card slots good battery and uh, those two lenses the 16 to 35 zoom so you can get a, a variety of, of wide angle stuff good for vlogging and, and landscapes but mm -hmm. the 90 millimeter macro is one that people are surprised that i i i have because why would you carry a, a macro lens right but i fell in love i've been shooting on macro lenses for God, man, eight years, six, six or eight years now, because one time I brought it to the jungle to shoot bugs. I love bugs. And then I realized, oh, like you can actually shoot, you know, monkeys in the trees because they're, it's a 90 millimeter. It's telephoto enough. Yeah. Cameras have like a, a, a APS-C crop zoom. So you can zoom in a bit more. And, but then I, I was, I realized you can shoot portraits really well too, because 90 millimeter 2.8 is a great portrait lens. So you mm. can shoot faces and also it's a macro, so you can get like up close details, especially food and things being cooked. It's such a, an amazing travel lens. And you generally you want these wide, like wide angle or, or zoom lenses and travel so you can have a lot of different angles in one lens. Well, a 90 millimeter macro is kind of like that, but it's not a zoom lens, but you can use it for a wide variety of, of applications. Again, like faces, food, details zoom you know wildlife sometimes as well and i love it and between those two i can capture everything and so that video was filmed on a 16 to 35 and um a 90 90 millimeter mm. incredible yeah I, I i think i read one of your descriptions in your 
in one of your videos, like my secret lens. And I was like, 90 millimeter macro lens. Like, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now I know the, the reason, the reasoning behind that. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you grew up in a family, you know, around animals, obviously, and you are, uh, in all respects, an animal lover. One, the, the moment that I decided, like, I had to meet this guy even just remotely and talk to him was when I watched that clip and in that clip where the Hadzab, the, the Hadza tribe caught this little uh, kudu, the baby kudu. Mm. And um, what they did was they bit the, the ear of the kudu so the kudu baby would cry out for the mom so that they would in turn hunt the mom. Is it because obviously the mom has more meat? Yeah. And, uh, uh, so the, the kudu, the kudu is like a little deer animal. And that, yeah. that was the kind of moment. And these are the things like, I don't, I want to include this stuff. I just don't know what YouTube's going to do. And Dude, that video it was, was like, Whoa, I, kind of, I had I to know. pause the video. I'm like, what? I know. So just to tell the story, we, there was this, um, mm. this bait, this bait. So that what happens with the hunting is you're in the woods and the dogs are kind of like cheat codes. They go, they have a better nose, they have better ears. So you're there with the hunters. They arm themselves with poison arrows and the dogs are kind of like the, the scouts, the sweepers. And then a dog will make a peep and then all the dogs run over. And so they had found a, a baby kudu, a baby deer type animal, baby antelope and its mother. And so the dogs caught the baby deer. <clears throat> the hunters ran over, grabbed the baby deer. The baby deer's never by itself, by the way. It was too small. And they bring it onto the road. And yeah, so Sokoro takes his, his canine tooth and bites the baby deer's ear. So it goes to oh, its mother. Okay, so he takes the, I thought he bit it himself. Uh, yeah, he did bite it himself. Okay. He did bite the, yeah. And, but it was so the deer would cry out mm-hmm. and hoping the mother would come back to save the baby deer. And they would be able to shoot the mother with poison arrows. But I mean, which is like heavy, heavy. It was heavy, dude. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's a very practical way of doing things. Like the 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 young could obviously make it on its own. I don't know how the, what, what, what the chances are for that kudu. Yeah. And the, the mom has more meat, obviously. And uh, she's definitely passed on the genes. So she's done her work, blah, blah. But and uh-huh. uh, why don't you go ahead? What happened to the, the other half of the story? Yeah. And so they bit its ear, the, the baby deer cried out. And then as soon as that happened, all of the other hunters had like poison arrows armed in their bows, draw strings pulled back, looking around to see if she was going to come barreling through the bushes again and try to save her baby. And she didn't, um, which is probably a good thing. Well, definitely a good thing. And then what, what they didn't show in the video is they, um, the deer was still alive at this point. Like they hadn't done anything to it. They took a big rock, gave it one big crack on the, on the noggin. And then um, this guy's name was Momo. Sorry if that blew your eardrums out. <laughs> but that's like, that, that's his name. Um, and they say the click language and they, he bit, his, bit the deer's neck. That's how they, they that's how they killed it. I, I didn't mean, the, know the rock, about the rock before. Cause in the, I in cut your, it out. Yeah, in your yeah, video, it, it, it said like, okay, the, 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 this, sorry if I really messed up the name there. <laughs> um bit hit bit, basically broke the windpipe of the baby kudu and that's how they yeah. how, what's that like for yeah. for the well, for an animal is it a quick death if you do that if you if you the, break the rock pipe? yeah the rock definitely oh the and, rock did it yeah the rock did 90 percent, and i think the last little bit was, was the just coup de bite, but I, the rock was it was very um it was very graphic and the bite was shocking but sound again, of it, i can imagine oh there was a there was a sound was but a again crunch. like i don't it's not like I, I don't get a sick pleasure out of, out of, out of showcasing this stuff. I, I but it happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like I consider myself a journalist in the sense that I'm not trying to, not like, I'm not, I'm not there making this happen for the camera. This happens. And I, and I, if I'm invited, I, I make a movie about it. And so people get it mixed sometimes that like, I th- they think I'm creating these experiences and, and things are, getting hurt or, uh, you know, these controversial things are happening because I make them happen. Often it's, I just show up like I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was it. So again, I'm not making it happen. This exists. So and together as a collective, us humans, we can decide um, what, that, what to do at the, at the very least talk about it. Like there's been some very controversial things I've filmed that, um, that st- sparked some conversation and people hate me for, 
the amount of poison and threats I got for making a, a video recently about the, um, dancing with black mambas, which is this video. This is there's a tribe where I in the southern that. part of Tanzania, mm -hmm, these guys they literally dance with black black mambas are one of the most venomous and dangerous snakes in the entire world. They can kill you in a matter of they're a aggressive hours. too. Like they're very aggressive. They'll attack. Right. A lot of poisonous. Sorry, a lot of venomous snakes um, won't just out of nowhere, run after you and bite you, right? Mm. They'll get cornered, they'll get scared. That's normally how animals in this and poisonous, sorry, venomous. <laughs> People got mad, I said poisonous. Uh, venomous animals in this world work is that they, they don't want to use their venom. It's a resource. It takes a lot of time and energy. Calories, to produce. yeah. Yeah, but black, black mambas, man, mm. they, they, they can run faster than you and can raise themselves up like, I think a meter and a half. A so meter and a half, and they, eye to eye. So, the fact that this tribe dances with them is incredible. So I didn't, I heard it was happening. This tribe goes around, they consider themselves snake dancers and they teach local um, small villages about snakes. I mean, they, they live in snake territory, all of these people. And a lot of them just kill snakes willy nilly, don't care. They see a snake, it dies. All snakes are dangerous, they think. And so this tribe goes around and instructs how to treat snake bites, shows how, which snakes are dangerous, which ones aren't and does a bit of education but they defang them. I didn't know that. I found out on day one that they're defanged. I didn't know much about snake defanging. I didn't know the problems about it, uh, but apparently if you defang a snake, you basically set it, set a death sentence. It, it'll die in a, in a few months. I didn't know this. Because it can't eat. It can't eat uh, and the fangs don't grow back. Uh. I didn't know. And often it breaks their jaw. Again, I didn't know this. There were some snakes that didn't look very good for sure, um, uh. but I didn't know that it, the snake would eventually die. I didn't know that snake fangs never grew back out. I thought they were like, like shark teeth or something. Teeth, or maybe like, because uh, a lot of lizards can regrow tails yeah. and, and even uh, toes and stuff. I never right? knew so, that. Yeah. So you get one pair in your snake lifetime and that's it. Take care of that pair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got so many hate messages tagged on Instagram, DMs on Facebook, comments saying how I was like, disgusting and the filth of the earth and how I was encouraging Hi. the killing of snakes and and that but that's the difference it, it's I'm not like I didn't I'm just showing something that happens right I'm not saying I didn't ever never once that I say is this good or bad obviously I could tell the snakes weren't I mean if you shake a snake around for a couple hours it's not going to have a good time in the video I, I took two minutes out of the middle of it and said is this good or bad like they're they're educating but obviously it's not awesome for the snakes um, but people don't people have a gut reaction right where we, we use our hearts not our heads they'll see something they'll see a youtuber automatically it's it's the youtuber's fault and they'll just start whipping stones and then posting all these platforms saying how i should die and all this kind of stuff right but at the same time i got into this game because that stuff i want it doesn't do well hidden you know, there's a lot of controversial things like Pinikpikan in the Philippines, where a live chicken is beaten because they believe the crying of the chicken attracts the attention of God and that it makes it taste better. So they beat it with a stick for like five minutes first. Is that okay? Is it not okay? Well, it's probably not okay, but it exists. <laughs> and so by making content about it, and we can have a discussion about it. Mm -hmm. And in the future, in 50 years, will it stop? Maybe, right? But together, we, we now know it exists. And we can collectively analyze the pros and cons of a cultural practice or an educational practice versus the, the harming of an animal. Is it okay to harm animals? No, it's not. And so th this is just a, a, I like starting these conversations and sometimes mm -hmm. people get very mad at me <laughs> and other times YouTube again, like cuts my content off to the majority of the world because it's just not a common viewpoint or it's, it's, it's something that is a bit too on the nose often. I, I show up. I don't. I don't want to have an opinion about these things. I don't feel like it's my, my place to blow into a, a, a tribe or a country and say this is right, this is wrong, dude. I don't know. Mm. I think the biggest thing in the world is if you're traveling, you realize that all this shit you thought was right and wrong, it's like everything's gray. It's there's no black and white in this world. You hear, okay, well, you know, this shouldn't happen, and then you go there and you're like, wow, my god, like, okay, you shouldn't deforest trees. I was in Madagascar. Wow. People shouldn't be cutting down rare hardwoods. I pictured some dude with a chainsaw and like a gold chain. And you go there and it's 
like a nice old man who has so like seven kids because they're not allowed to have contraception and there's no information and his rice field is now infertile and he has to cut down the trees to then plant more rice to keep his family alive. Like if, he, if I was in his shoes, dude, I'd be cutting down the forest because I like my family's important. Like I have seven kids, you know, like it just gets so much more complicated once you dive in. And this is the story everywhere, right? Everything you think, you know what is right and wrong. You go to these places in this in this world, and you realize it's, it's there's so much nuance to it, and so much more complicated than you think. Mm. And that's that's what I like to show. I don't I don't I, I want to go there and show something. And generally, I try not to have an opinion. Maybe maybe a little bit sometimes, depending on what it is. But I don't feel like it's my place to judge as a traveler. Mm. I do like the d- little disclaimer that you put on some of your videos, like going, going back to the video we talked about with the Hadza, when you're like, uh, before you watch whatever you're going to watch within the next few minutes, keep an open mind. Okay. The, the, these people have lived this way for, for, for as long as they've been here. And, you know, I think people should just let people live and let live, you know, and you're right about it's, it's, it's so common sense that the world is so more, so much more nuanced than just black and white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you do actually, take time and pause and just observe, you know, you might actually learn a thing or two. Uh, going back to that Pinic Peak and thing, dude, that was like, we have home homeroom economics classes in, in high school. That was one of our projects was to butcher a chicken in that, <laughs> uh, but that, not in that manner though. I do agree that it does make it taste better because the blood uh, migrates from the, I mean, it, it just fills up that, that muscle so when you when you cook it like it's it's blood it's engorged with blood mm-hmm. so it tastes that much better mm-hmm. uh the god bit i'm not really sure about that but it definitely for culinary reasons it does taste different but look at foie gras yeah also cruelty to animals right feel so, <laughs> mm-hmm. and is there a world where so there's there's quite a few cultural practices in this world that people that causes suffering to people to for example, another one, I was in the Amazon in uh, around Leticia in Colombia on the very southern tip. We were doing this um, canoeing. Sorry, how do you spell that? L-E-T-I-C-A. Leticia. Oh, Leticia. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just like a name. Okay. Got it. And there was, um, we were talking about, we were in a small village. We were canoed there by like dugout canoe. And there, there's people who covered like in blue, like blue ink. And some people were completely covered in blue ink. And I was like, this is a really weird thing to see. But basically, there's a berry there that if you squash the berry and you rub it on your skin, it'll dye your, almost like henna, it'll dye your skin dark blue for about a week or two, or maybe even longer. And I was speaking to my local guide and he's like, well, actually, uh, there's a rite of passage here, but it's under controversy because the girls, once they hit puberty, would be dyed completely blue and put into a hut. Um, a dark hut where all of the women of the village would pull out their hair by strand. So 10 women would be together and, and they, the, the girls would turn blue and then all of their strands of hair would be pulled out one by one in their head. Per strand by just one strand at a time. Right. Mm -hmm. And then in this, in this hut um, over the next some amount of months until their skin was um, back to normal, I think. So it must last longer, the blue color they would learn all of the skills to mm. be a woman in that culture. So again, it was a lot of cooking, a lot of like how to bear a child, how to all, all those different things. It would take about a month and they'd be in this hut in, in relative darkness. And then they come out and then they'd be a woman. And that was being banned by some kind of human rights activist group. And it made me realize something that's like, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about because we've now removed most rites of passages in most people's lives. I'm not saying this, this, I mean, it'd be very painful to have your hair pulled out strand by strand, but like by removing all of these, these rites of passages, even like getting hazed in college, in a sense, that's a rite of passage. You know, people are afraid to let go of their children for a little while because of the bad things that could happen. Right. But in, in that, I think because there's no transition for a lot of us from, from a, a young, a young adult to in adult, we get lost. And I see it with a lot of men, especially women can, you know, their period is, is quite 
is quite a, 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 like a natural rite of passage for them. Something changes, right? Something drastic. And, and then they're known as a woman. But for men, wh when does this change, right? I think it's very easy to become a 30-year-old man boy and not really feel like you've, you've transitioned over into mm. being a man with those responsibilities. And now I see all over the world that some of these rites of passages that, that were that were uncomfortable, but you know what, dude, paint the best things in my life. I'm only sitting in this chair talking to you with a TV show, a podcast and a YouTube channel is because of uncomfortable moments mm. where life came and literally hit me in the face with a baseball bat. I mean, not literally, but <laughs> I was about, did you actually get hit in the, in the head? No, <laughs> overindulging in the world, yeah. literally, but it, it, it came, it, messed my life up completely like car crashes and deaths and all kinds of things every time there's been a moment of absolute breakdown in my life it's been one of the most formative that's ever happened to me and i i credit every single disaster as a giant leap forward as far as me becoming the person i always wanted to be and when we coddle ourselves too much in this world and we remove all sources of pain and discomfort then we Literally, I believe our mind has to find this stuff as part of human beings. We need the struggle. Hmm. We need it. We need some kind of struggle, whether it's just smashing our body at the gym, whether it's traveling, whether it's hunting for baboons, we need that struggle or else our mind searches for it. And I feel this is not my, my, I'm not an expert, but I feel like the reason why there's so much anxiety and, and mental problems and people screaming at each other online and telling me to kill myself because I make a video about something is because we, we're, we're actively trying to find struggles and problems. And we mm. get so off balance when there's no, when we haven't overcome a big thing in our life. And for me, that's a part of being human we've slowly gotten rid of is that struggle. Mm. And I, I guess I understand how these rites of passages along a lot of them were painful or embarrassing or difficult because we need that to be able to grow, to level up to level 2.0. And when you remove all of that, I think we, we create it in our minds and some of us go literally crazy, you know? And I'm not saying again, like for example, the, the hair pulling thing, I'm not saying if that's right or wrong. Um, but I'm saying that made me start to think about, what life is like when we remove these rites of passages in our lives and also do i did i have a rite of passage mm. is my culture no i kind of had to create my own yeah, i went confused. in woods for a week um mm. but it doesn't exist anymore and maybe that's why so many of us feel lost is because there's no transition point for us these days that's a very good point i never actually thought about it that way though i'm i i, I do know i'm not very i'm not alien to that concept of rites of passages back back home it's still getting circumcised as a boy yeah but sometimes even even like an older boy right like mm. you can get circumcised when you're 10 or something in the Philippines, yeah but you right? get, yeah i mean yeah but you you, you definitely want to get circumcised before you're 10 because <laughs> you will get your your ass bullied to the hilt if they knew that you know you weren't circumcised really but yes <gasps> it's it's just yeah. you get stigmatized and then you know that could follow through for how long I don't know, but you definitely want to get it out of the way as soon as possible. So, yeah, um, that's a good, that's a great point you, you made. Like people don't just get confused because they just don't have, they didn't feel that transition, especially for males. Like, when did I become a man? Like, am I still, who am I right now? Like, and you know, if you're self-aware enough, you make your own, like you said, like, oh, I'll, you just make your own. Like I live in the woods for for how long for, for a week or something just to like see what yeah. you're made of you know or yeah. life gives it to you in some event yeah, but you just... might not be aware that that's mm. life telling you something and you just go right. through it and then you get fucked up at the end because you get messed up yeah because like oh that was life's way of telling me to man up or to be someone else but i didn't i didn't know you know right. who, who really knows yeah and there's a there's a great book that i've been meaning to read uh it's called a comfort crisis uh, recently, it was recently uh, featured in one of the bigger podcasts. Uh, it's for it's by Michael Easter, mm -hmm. and uh, he just talks about these things, like what you said. Like people really do have to put themselves in certain situations in life where they're not exactly comfortable, and yeah. because it's good for you. There's a chemical, you know, called dopamine, obviously, and you can overload of this, and you need a detox off this stuff. 
So, you know, whatever you're doing on a daily basis that you think makes you feel good, if you do it often enough without any breaks in between or any variety, it just becomes banal. And then it just stops becoming fun. And then you just like the balance, you know, that sort of balance. Yeah. 100%. Mm, yeah, man. Uh, talking a bit about like YouTube now and how YouTube has evolved from y- your video, but your videos uh, 9, 11 years ago, or you've probably been doing videos way, way, back, way longer than that. Um, how hard is it now to keep up with the system if you're trying to grow a channel on YouTube, for example? <clears throat> well, I still think it's the best place to be if you're working on something mm-hmm. that you want to develop a personal brand or a message. I think it's harder than ever at the same time uh, because there's so many people making so many great videos out there. But let me tell you a, a summarized version of, of how it went for me. I've been making videos for 10 years. And I would say just in the past two years, things have been growing somewhat exponentially. So let's say I've I've been rewarded from eight years of hard work for two years of the channel growing faster and faster. The transition point for me was I had a channel, the channel used to be called kick the grind. Yes. And I was making videos about anything, you know, travel. And I, there were some things that I like, okay, this is a little bit strange and interesting, but I was worried about what I thought that YouTube would like to see. So I was making videos about top five things to do in Mexico or whatever. And I was getting burned out. And I hit a point where I, I, I couldn't, I, I felt like I was cheating myself. I didn't feel like I was making what I wanted to make as an, as an artist, as a creative, I felt like I was just selling myself out for myself. The, the big trans transition point for me was I, I realized early on that if you do the things that you're absolutely batshit scared about, life will reward you. And one thing I talk about often, because the name is Fearless and Far now, is that fear is this force in your life that we never learn how to to control. And it will very much control you if you don't learn learn how to control it. And I say this as an expert, because I was absolutely drop dead, blackout terrified to speak for my most of my life, I had this event happen where a teacher ridiculed me in front of a class in grade four, and it stuck. And so I would literally shake so much I couldn't read notes if I was holding them. Um, I would I would almost be like Will Smith in not Will Smith, Will Ferrell in old school, where he goes and does the gymnastics thing, where he, yeah. he blacks out and he comes to after. Except for for him, it was awesome. For me, it was it wasn't good at all. <laughs> I, I just lost control, and I'd have for many years. I'd have panic attacks when mm. I thought maybe the teacher might call on my name to read. And now it's my full time job. Literally, all I do is speak <clears throat> on on television, on podcasts, on YouTube, and I've been able to negotiate negotiate a new relationship with this feeling. It's not gone. I'm not fearless, but I realized fearlessness is just simply acknowledging the fear and choosing to do it anyway. And that's what I'm really passionate about. And I, I learned this a long time ago, 10 years ago, when I started making videos, that's when I over, i never overcame it, but when I learned to do it anyway. And so I was, I was traveling and making YouTube videos. And then again, a couple of years ago, I was like, dude, you're, you don't feel like you have this secret thing that's helped you so much, which is this fear thing that you realize that if you do the things you think you're bad at, you can be pretty great. And I was there and I was thinking like, why are you choosing to do everything you are when you are willing to do things that other people aren't like you're choosing to do what's trending when you're very willing to go sleep on a cave floor with some locals or eat the grasshopper or drink the glass of cow blood with the Messiah. Like these are things that you're, you want to do. You want to learn this stuff. You want to show this stuff. This is the interesting. These are the the bugs from when you were a kid, this misunderstood part of the world that is really interesting. If you just take the time to learn about it. And I transitioned everything. I, I I wanted, I was thinking fantasizing for years about getting a sleeve tattoo. Like, Oh, it'd be so cool to get a sleeve tattoo. But but, but a thousand butts, but brands wouldn't work with me. But, you know, I don't know what my parents would think, but, and then I just kind of said, F it. And I got the sleeve tattoo, started saying no to any kind of press trip where I was just going to see the cathedral and eating some kind of fried dough. 
at that same thing in every world and mm -hmm. found these cool trips. And I didn't care about brands. I didn't care about who would want to work with me. I just wanted to be me and stay true to my message. And then from that point forward, everything changed. I assume by getting a sleeve tattoo, brands like BBC wouldn't want to work with me. Boom. I got the sleeve tattoo next year. BBC messaged me saying, Hey, do you want to be a host on a, on a new TV show? Mm. Like th these, these things that all these reasons, this right, these rationalizations, these problems I had put in my head, none of them existed, right? None of them existed. I was just creating barriers in my life. Oh, I can't post about the eating this weird thing because, you know, maybe YouTube will ban me or block me, or maybe people will unsubscribe. Screw that. I just decided to, to drop all of these, these, these decisions I was making about what people wouldn't, wouldn't do and just do it, man. And from there, things slowly started to change. Mm. And so for me, it was a long process. And if you, if you're starting a channel now or a channel or a podcast or a Instagram page, you have to stop thinking about like how many views you're getting. I know it's hard. Um, but the biggest thing in the beginning was I was getting kind of butt hurt about how my friends and family weren't watching all my videos. I was like, how can you not watch it? <laughs> and then I realized like it's, they're not made for them. They're made for other people and the people mm -hmm. I didn't know would watch it. And I stopped caring whether or not my friends and family watched it because they're busy. Everyone's everyone's got stuff to do, man. And so I would just make content for me, make content for things that I loved and try not to worry too much about what, what the numbers were doing. <clears throat> and from there, I also picked up a skill set. Again, I wasn't, I'm not naturally gifted at this, but by practicing making videos, by editing, by all these different things, I developed a skill set. Then that allowed me to do all these other projects too. I was a travel filmmaker for a while. I now, again, am a podcast host only because I kept on recording, kept on doing videos, even if the view count wasn't there, even if subscribers weren't there but by practicing anything for so long you get a really nice skill set and now i'm sitting in miami i've just been offered my own tv show on a major u.s network um, are you allowed to talk online. about it just yet or um uh, no i can't talk about it yet but i i know that it's going to be going live in november on a major u.s network awesome. and it's like an anthony bourdain style show like i'm the only host we're doing all so of these episodes so based you. on the travel. Yeah, it's it's the dream. It's what I've wanted this entire mm. time, mm. you know? Um, but I only got here because I kept on pushing <clears throat> for six for six years, for for seven years with very little, very little, let's call it like reward from YouTube as far as subscribers and mm. views and all that kind of stuff. Are are but you with that skill set? Like, sorry, are you even allowed mm. to talk to about to the about the name of your show? Yeah, because we haven't set it in stone yet. There's a tent. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So yeah, mm -hmm. we'll just we'll, we'll just uh, we'll wait until November, and then when that comes out, I'll just yeah. keep tabs on yeah, your yeah. channel. Okay, man. Yeah. Sorry. Go. Yeah. No. All of that. So, um, and here I am sitting in Miami, and and never, like, I guess I I I I, I was hoping I'd be here someday, but here I am, and it's because I worked for so long on a skill set to get myself here. Hmm. And now that everything's everything's doing well, and I feel very fortunate, but at the same time, I worked my ass off, man, doing something that I I was told I was bad at, I thought I was bad at, and I was I like would have panic attacks about doing this. And now it's my full time job, and that's the <laughs> secret that I, I I obsess over is telling people that this fear thing, this comfort thing, is dangerous and it's seductive, and it's so easy to sit on the sidelines and let these things, these voices in your head command what you should and shouldn't do based on these things that may or may not happen. You got to get out there. You got to grab it by the balls. And I know it's terrifying. And I, I, I don't I haven't found the right way to vocalize it because no one wants to go out there and do the thing they're scared of. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's deathly uncomfortable. No one likes to be bad at something. No one likes to look, look, no one wants to embarrass themselves. Right. And especially as we get older, we, we kind of find who we are and then we kind of put the doors up and we say, oh, I'm not good at this. This isn't for me. I'm not a cook. I'm not a, I don't read books, whatever it is. But the thing is, <clears throat> it's because you've never really put time into it. And especially for me, I'm such a natural introvert that I, I, I just would, what I would do is I would assume something wasn't for me. And um, if I tried and it wasn't good, I'm a perfectionist, so I wouldn't like it and I'd stop. But the thing is, if you're introverted <clears throat> and you care what people think, like my default setting is, you work three times harder than anybody else who is naturally gifted at something, whether it be making YouTube videos, picking up girls, you know, learning 
a skill. Like if you, because you're so sensitive to what's good and bad and you overanalyze anything, you get really good, really fast at a lot of things, mm. much better than people who are naturally gifted, who are, yeah, they're good at it. But if you want to be great, it's a blessing to, to be an introvert and to care what people think too much because mm. you will work so much harder. And, and that's what it is for me, you know, like, um, that, that's, that's my secret. Like anything, it wouldn't it make sense that this, if you think you're bad at something that you do it <clears throat> 30 times, watch some YouTube videos, read a book about it, that you'll be pretty good. You know? Yeah, of course that makes sense. But our brains don't really work that way. Right. We're scared to be bad at something. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that, those are very encouraging words, obviously for people out there as well. People are content creators who are, it's always going to be the same question every year. Is it too late to start a YouTube channel in 2021? And then 2022 comes along. Same, same question, different year. So yeah, you just, there's a, mm -hmm. there's, um, a book that's being brought up a lot these days it's called the, the war of art. Oh yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Pressfield. Pressfield. And yeah, very and, short. it's a good book. Yeah. It's a very short book. Pretty yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's being tossed around because there's this concept of resistance and everybody should read this book because what it does is it takes that feeling, that voice in your head, and it gives it a name. It calls it resistance. Mm. And so some, when you said, is it too late to start a YouTube channel? That is the resistance, in the words of Pressfield, stopping you. All the time, for most people, there's a voice in your head that's trying to rationalize up these reasons why you shouldn't get started. Oh, it's probably too late. And you know what the solution is? You, we hear it so many times. It's you just got to do it, man. You, you start it. You do. You just start. You start right now. You right. film on your phone. You know. You record. You record on your computer or microphone. The podcast. Like you just gotta start. You just gotta start. You don't need the perfect camera. You just gotta start. And that's where everybody gets stuck. Every and it because it, it's not a quick. It's not a quick fix. You know. It's not. That when people ask that question, it's like. They're hoping that they hear yes, so they can feel good on the inside about them not having started yet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so you just got to do it. And it's, you have to pay attention to this voice in your head stopping you from doing anything great in life. The, what the resistance tries to do is keeps you in one spot and you have to acknowledge the voice, be like, okay, hi, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Good to see you here, but I'm going to do it anyway. I call it fear. He calls it resistance. It's the same thing. Mm. This, this natural voice inside of us that is like our default setting not to, to stand out in the crowd, you know, be, be part of the tribe. Um, but it doesn't know, it doesn't know what's best for you. It's just like an overly cautious mother, really. Mm. Uh, to add to that point in the book as well, it says the more resistance you feel, that means like that's where your heart is actually at. Like you have to <clears> push more. If, if you have more resistance, if you feel more resistance uh, towards a certain thing, that's the cue where you have to actually like power through. And then there's also a very um, interesting concept in that book called the muse. Like yeah, for this thing, ethereal thing to come, you just have to summon it. And how you do that is you just basically do the thing that you don't want to do. If it's writing yeah. for other people, you just sit down, beat yourself, you know, and, and just like put words on, on, on paper and then the muse will come and you know the work will happen so yeah right um i yeah oh that that's been a an hour i've taken enough of your time mike just as a closing note for people who are listening to that for people who are listening here there's a really really good message in one of your videos i think it's the what is it i think it's the the demo for a global traveler thing one of your older ones Mm -hmm. And you outline three points, creativity over conformity, curiosity over compliance, and experiences over possessions. Mm -hmm. And you, you still li live by these three ethos every day, do you? Yeah, well, that, that was the motto of the channel for a long time. It was just a little bit wordy and I haven't. Is there, haven't, a, is there uh, a more, is there, a, is, is there a newer one? No, I, I, I still, I still stand by, by all of those. I still, I still very much believe that curiosity is the most important quality someone can have. And you can control that as well. People think maybe you're naturally curious. People have to be born this way. But it's just asking questions. There, there's so many interesting things in this world. And we just are, people aren't used to asking questions. 
always ask questions. Mm. And that covers the first two, right? Um, the best thing I ever did was ask questions. Mm. And, and I think it's such an important way. Um, and experience over possessions, that's been my entire life as well. Uh, I, the experience I've had uh, have completely shaped who I am. And I think that people, I think some people might know that experiences, of course, are worth a lot, but we still always obsess over having the newest piece of tech or whatever it is. I still don't have a house, still don't have a car. I've been kind of like a floating vagabond now for 10 years. And I, I love it. I, I never have any regrets about it. I guess I feel that, I mean, I'm 35. I'm, I'm not in a rush to, to, get a bunch of stuff and because I kind of feel like it's anchors. You put yourself in debt and you mm. have these things to keep you in one spot. And sure, that might not be apply apl applicable to everybody, but, but I know that the experiences I'm gathering now teach me more about how to make better decisions in my life and they'll stick with me forever. And there's no rush for me to get all this stuff because that's where I'm going to be eventually. Whether I'm 25, 35 or 55, it's all going to end with a house car and you know a stable lifestyle. And I think about that, if I'm going to spend 30, 40, 50 years that way, um, what's the rush? Mm. Yeah, they're always just going to be there out there anyways, you know, there's not never a shortage of things to buy and things to own. Yeah, but time yeah, and experiences, like that, right? yeah, time and experience, those, those things, uh, they're, they're the only coin that we have in this life is time and experiences, really, people really don't put a premium on that. But to be honest, uh, like uh, some, some people say like they have 20 years to do something. They actually have 20 times to do it because this thing you want to do, you know, if you're lucky, you get to do it once a year. So you don't mm -hmm. actually have 20 years to do something. You have 20 times to do it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I'm really excited in this new show and, um, you know, some of the stuff, greater, great stuff that's coming out of your channel, Mike. And, um, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity and the people on this platform as well. Yeah, well, I can't talk about the show right now, unfortunately. I, and I honestly, I hate that uh, I can't because <laughs> I wish I could, but it doesn't even have a name yet, right? So, <clears throat> but one thing I can talk about is um, a new podcast that I'm a host of. It's called mm. Against the Odds. Mm -hmm. We just started recording it a few months ago, and it's telling the world's most amazing survival stories. And I love the K. I think I think I'm half through. I'm halfway through the K two episode. Oh yeah, yeah, and that the cool thing about all of them is that we tell the story. So the K2 um, Savage Mountain episode in 2008, there was uh, like 20 or so climbers that tried to attempt to, that attempted to climb K2. And unfortunately, like 11 of them died. And so we tell the, we tell the story. Uh, well, I mean, also a bunch of them survived against the odds. That's where the name came from. And we tell the story. And then usually we were able to get someone who was there and we do an interview. So after learning a story, we get to speak to someone who was there or involved in some, in some aspect, which is incredible to be able to tell the story and then hear the juicy, intimate details of, of all of the, the craziness or the, the, the amazing stories after. And that's, if you type in against the odds, anywhere you get normally get podcasts. So Amazon music, Apple podcasts, Spotify, you'll find it. And I'm, I'm one of two hosts, but I've done four of the five first seasons. So mm. there's a lot of me on there right now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, obviously please do visit far and fearless, just type fearless and far fearless and far. Sorry. Mm. Just type it on YouTube. It's there and do check out my Corey's work. Do you want to see some baboon hunting? <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Sign yourself yeah. in so you can watch an age restricted video and uh, <laughs> <laughs> help the algorithm. All right, Mike, thank you so much. Um, well, that's it really. Thank you so much for coming on the show again. You have a good day, dude. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure, man.